0: Well, good morning again. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Um, last Sunday, I missed you guys. I've been gone for two Sundays. If you didn't know, um, I wrecked my perfect attendance award for because they give those out, right? We give those out here. Jason, do I get one? No. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, I actually was in Ecuador last week and kind of looking at um, some uh, missions work that we could do there and partner. I mean, I'm really excited to share more with you. Um, but I got to be on the airplane, and because I'm a T-Mobile user, I got Wi-Fi on the plane. And so I watched church from way up high, and it was pretty awesome, you guys. I realized, oh, I miss you guys, like, a lot. I'm sitting here in business class, <laughs> eating my warm nuts and drinking um, non-alcoholic beverages, even though everyone around me was enjoying I'm going to move on to what we're actually talking about this morning, Um, and that is what is going on around here. And I want to invite you to Ignite, which we call our family meeting, and um, it's the place where I will likely share more about Ecuador and our plans in moving forward. Um, But not just that, we talk about all sorts of things. It's just kind of like... Well, family dinner time, where you can ask questions, and it's more of a conversation. Um, And so we would love for you to come. If you call Brookview your church home, or you're interested in making Brookview your church home, you will get the real deal there. And if you don't like that, (laughs) you need to find someplace else to go. (laughs) I I said it with a smile. No, just kidding. It's from 6 o'clock to 8 o'clock um, in the evening on Sunday, October 22nd. We have child care for the kids next door in the form of a pajama movie popcorn party. And so they can get all ready for bed. Come, come. And um, we will be excited to see you on October 22nd. No RSVP is needed. Just come. If you have a baby that you are hoping to have child care for... And that is someone who cannot toddle around, crawl around during the movie. Um, You need to reach out to me in particular or email um, the Brookview number or fill out your communication card online or on your seat. And we love hearing from you, so take a minute and fill that out and respond um, to whatever you'd like to. That's all I got.
1: and you are a wild card. <laughs> yeah. Well, you guys, last week we started this series on prayer that will take us all the way through the fall. And there's no shortage of scriptures, like places we could go to start contemplating this ancient mystery that is prayer. But it it hardly gets more concise and straightforward than Paul's instructions to the church in Philippi, he writes. He writes this. He says, "The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus." You know, I, one of the f- like frustrating things about scripture, about the Bible is that it, it rarely reads like Ikea instructions, right? Most of Scripture comes to us in like parables or poetry or stories or prophecy or... And sometimes we just, we like, want, we want simple instructions. Like if God would just lay out for me what he wants for me and for my life, like step by step, then I would do it. This passage in Philippians is laid out in a step-by-step format. Number one, don't be anxious about anything. Number two, pray about everything. Number three, the peace of God will guard you. It's very clear, very simple, very straightforward, and yet, we rarely do it. Most of us spend far more time agonizing over our anxious thoughts than surrendering them to God in prayer. Why do we do that? Why don't we follow Paul's simple formula? And the short answer is because we don't buy it. We think, come on, it's just not that simple, right? In our culture, anxiety has become an epidemic. Anxiety is kind of like the score in a movie, the music playing underneath the story of, of modern life. It's just sort of there setting the mood for the whole story. And even those that are rooted in the church are far more familiar with a subconscious drive to control and manage overwhelming circumstances than to relinquish them to our God of love and prayer. And like many, I've lived that life. I live it again and again and I know what happens in me and I know what that feels like. Far too often I have tended to worry and manage and control without prayer. So I I just so you know, I'm not somebody who's speaking to you today as like you guys need to get it together like me. <laughs> okay, I, I know all about this, but I also I also have experienced what Paul is describing. I have, and I want more of it. God, God promises peace a kind of peace that we can't even logically reason out in exchange for what can at times be crippling anxiety and and the means of the swap is what it's prayer but most people struggle to consistently engage God in such a way that that this exchange actually becomes their reality why like why, why don't we engage God in the way that he's offering like why why don't we pray and the most, the most obvious obstacles to prayer are pretty surface level. I mean, for most of us, like, we're busy. I don't, I don't pray because I'm busy. You know, we're trying to be successful. We're, we're trying to build good relationships with people. We're trying to do good in the world. And that all takes time, right? And, of course, there's the fact that we, like, carry the Internet around in our pocket and so, or our purse or our man bag. And so now, every moment can be spent scrolling something, like Instagram posts or fantasy football updates or political arguments on X uh, or, you know, whatever it is that floats your boat. And so we're, we're busy and we're distracted. And still, you likely find some time to, like, eat and sleep. Some of you even work out. So my point is that even busy, distracted people have a way of finding time for what really matters to them. So there's something deeper keeping us from praying. And here's part of it for many of us. For many of us, prayer doesn't resolve our anxiety. For many of us, we're so uncomfortable with prayer, it creates anxiety. We, we have fears associated with prayer that actually produce anxiety. We're intimidated by prayer, and we're afraid of prayer. So let me, let, me, let me start today just by naming off a few of those fears, and we could go on and on, but let me just highlight a couple. Sometimes, number one, we don't pray for fear of being naive. I mean, prayer can never be perfected or mastered. Prayer requires submission, and to pray is to put ourselves in an unguarded exposed position. There's no control, only humility and hope. To to pray is to risk being naive, to risk believing, to risk playing the fool. To pray is to trust somebody who might let you down. To pray is to get our hopes up, and we've learned to avoid that. So sometimes, even without conscious awareness of why, we're just, we avoid prayer. Or sometimes, number two, we don't pray for fear of silence. We, we live in a culture where silence has become foreign. And so for noise addicts, the silence of prayer is scary. It's uncomfortable. It's awkward. We, we prefer to follow Jesus and to, and to have a relationship with Jesus or with, you know, with God amidst all the noise. So we're afraid of what we might discover if we enter into silence, right? It's like, what if, like, what if, we're, what if I strip away the music and the community and the sermon? What, what if I strip away all the noise that's associated with my faith? In the quiet, like just me and God, what will I discover? So for many of us, we, we've mastered talking about, singing about, reading about, and learning about God. But prayer means risking quiet interaction alone with that God. And the longer we engage God only in the noise, the less comfortable we become with him in the quiet. Again, maybe even subconsciously we wonder, like, I don't know about that. Like, what if it's awkward? What if it's disappointing? I mean, what if it's boring? I can do anything in this rug and take anything, but not boring. What, what if I don't feel it? What if I don't feel anything? What if it just feels like I'm talking to the wall? And so for many of us, we just fear the silence. Or sometimes, number three, we don't pray for fear of doing it wrong. I mean, we've all listened to the beauty of someone else's prayer, like in a group, right? I was talking to a guy in our church, and he's like, when Rebecca prays, it's like the angels are singing, and so I just can't pray like Rebecca. And I'm like, yeah, then you, sh- you shouldn't pray, no, I, like I, we've all had the experience. Like you're in a group, right? And you hear somebody you you hear the beauty of someone else's prayer, and you feel like you're you're going to be next up after MLK in a high school speech class, <laughs> right? It's just like wow, wow. Like that sounded great, and and I don't sound like that. I'm not that eloquent, right? And and I don't know all the right theological words and and biblical phrases. And maybe someday I really will like master the lingo and the and the mechanics, but. But, but I can't pray like that. Or maybe we worry that, that our heart, our heart's off, right? Our heart's not fully in the right place. We can't pray if our heart is kind of off. We're afraid that our motives aren't pure enough to just come before God. For instance, let's say you have a, like, let's say you have a friend or a roommate, a person that doesn't know Jesus. Well, before praying for God to help that person know Jesus, maybe your mind starts racing with doubts and questions about yourself stuff like well okay but why do i really want this person to find god is it is it fully out of a pure desire for her to meet a love that makes her whole is is that really my heart or is it just that i that i find comfort in someone else reaching the same conclusions that i have is it more that i i just i'm looking for an ally someone else to be on my side is the bottom line really that I'm just afraid to face a world that doesn't hold the same values as me all by myself or am I possibly coming from a place of superiority do do I think that I've like got all the answers and the world would be better if everyone else just thought like me believe believe like me behave like me am I just camouflaging pride and narcissism as like spiritual compassion And so rather than talking with God about that and about our impure hearts and then praying for the people that we love, we just go, "Yeah, I can't pray. I'm not in a good spot. What if I do it wrong? Okay, finally, sometimes number four, we don't pray for fear that there's just no point. We think stuff like, okay, if God is all-knowing, all-loving, and all-powerful, what is the point of prayer? And, and what am I doing when I'm praying? Am I, am I informing of him, uh, him of some problem so that he'll know about it? I mean, doesn't he already know everything? Am I, am I asking him to care more? I mean, doesn't he already care as much as he possibly could? Am I asking him to do more? Isn't he already doing everything that can be done? And then you, you add to this a, a growing, like a growing renaissance of Eastern spirituality in the modern West. So practices like Buddhist mindfulness, or meditative emptying, or yoga, not just as like relaxation and exercise, but like chanting in an unknown language to an unknown God. Like anything to help us get to some elusive centered state is on the table. So in our culture, many people approach prayer like this. They're like, yeah, sure, I'll pray. If by prayer we're talking exclusively about something happening in me some kind of spiritual meditation. I can totally get on board with that. But actual communication with a divine being listening to my requests and responding? Come on. Like if such a being even existed, the idea that he or she or they would be at my beck and call for conversation, that's absurd. Like this is a common view in our culture, yes? So even inside the church, we, we feel that, and we can be skeptical. Like, okay, prayer as meditation to reach a centered state, great. But God actually listening to me and responding? Hmm. So yes, we're, we're busy, distracted people. But often below the surface, there's deeper stuff going on. Sometimes it's subconscious. And yet many of us also, when we, when we think about what's going on inside of us at a gut level, There's something in us that longs for prayer. Like something in us that knows that without consistent, vibrant prayer, life easily devolves into something self centered and empty. Something lonely and fearful and shallow. So I want to think about that reality together today and just address this question why pray? And I think the list of compelling answers to that is actually endless. We could, we could talk about just that question for months and months and months. But today, I just want to highlight three that come to mind for me. And the first one is this. We pray because prayer connects us to our Father. Jesus taught that we spend most of life unaware of how deeply God longs for us. Like how much his heart yearns to be connected to ours. Sometimes, I, may, many of you have heard this, sometimes we describe we describe people as having like a God-shaped hole in their heart, right? The idea is we, we all hunger and thirst for something that this world can't provide. We have a, a, like a God-shaped void in our hearts that only God can fill. And so we try to fill it with all kinds of other stuff. But without God, there will always be an emptiness in the core of who we are. And there's, I, there's something, very much something to that, I think. But Jesus also taught, in a sense that God has a U-shaped hole in his heart. That, that when you're distant from him, he actually, he feels a deep ache over you. And when you think about it, Jesus taught it, he taught it again and again. Like when Jesus spent time with people distant from God, the religious leaders criticized him, calling him a, a friend of sinners. sinners. And one time Jesus responded then to that criticism with three powerful stories. The lost sheep, The lost coin and the prodigal son. Three parables that were all illustrating the same basic point, which is Jesus for, pay attention to this, right? Three stories in a row with the same point. In the first two stories, something of extra value, of like extreme value was lost. And each warranted an all-out search. Very valuable coin and a sheep. And when they were found, there was delight, right? The owner, threw a huge party, and gathered all the neighbors together and said, come celebrate with me. Jesus said, this is what happens in the heavens with God and the angels. And it happens anytime someone distant from God comes home. In the third story, the lost thing was a person, not an object. A son treats his father callously and runs away from home. The father isn't angry, just hurt, and he aches over his son's absence. So he sits at home day after day with a broken heart, scanning the horizon, hoping. And one day he sees his son off in the distance coming home and he gets up and he runs to his son. He embraces him. He throws his arms around him and he kisses him over and over and over. And then he gathers all the neighbors together and he throws a huge party in his son's honor. Another time, Jesus described God's longing for us in this way. He said, what do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills to go and look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. And Jesus is saying, look, no matter how small or insignificant or unworthy you may feel in a given moment, God longs for you. He longs for you. In another parable, Jesus likens the kingdom to treasure, saying, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Now, this is one of those parables that actually has a double meaning. The first one, most people pick up on right away. Okay, number one, God is the treasure, right? So when we begin to see the treasure that God really is, when our eyes are open to it, any reasonable person would give up everything to know him and walk with him and have unhindered access to him. So going back to last week, if those of you that were here, when you see the huckleberries, it changes everything. Okay, but there's a second kingdom principle here that's also true. Number two, You are the treasure. To God, you are the treasure, and actually, he has given everything for you. Like when they crucified Jesus, they crucified perfect love, and that was the plan all along. The Father gave his son for you. And when we get clear on the identity of Jesus, we realize the son was himself God. He was sacrificing himself for you, and me and that's like mind bending we're like wait he was yeah go figure that out that's the story so the, the kingdom is about two things happening simultaneously learning to treasure God while at the same time discovering again and again how treasured you are and so for many of us we quickly see the truth of number one in this but we are so much less inclined to feel and believe number two Why pray? Because prayer connects us to our Father. Like, at its core, prayer is about far more than just making requests. God God wants us to learn to share our hearts with Him, and then He wants us to let Him share His heart with us. I mean, He wants wants us to talk with Him about everything that we're experiencing, all of our different emotions, all of the stuff that's going on. He just wants us to, to learn to be with him and talk with him and enjoy him and, and learn to, uh, you know, and enjoy the relationship with him. Um, okay, raise your hand if you're married. R- keep your hand up if you don't want to be. No, no. <laughs> so, okay. Ima- imagine something with me. What if, what if this next week you limited all communication with your spouse to nothing but requests. So no sharing feelings, talking about your day, no, no getting their advice or their input on anything, no, no hanging out holding hands, none of that. No doing activities together, no watching TV together, no eating dinner together, no physical intimacy some of you are like, this is hypothetical? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, di- I didn't hear that. What was that? Glenda, you... S- okay, no, no. All right. Okay, let's clean it up. By the way, gin will drink alcohol, just not in the morning while watching church. Okay, so... No communication of any kind outside of making requests, right? You look at that, you go, what kind of relationship would that be? And the point is that God longs for something so much more than that. And deep down, you guys, I think we do too. We do. I mean, like, you think about David and his relationship to God that you see painted beautifully all through the Psalms. He shares his feelings and his hopes and his dreams, and he shares with God his confusion and his frustration. Like when he's, when, he's, when he's frustrated with God, David airs out even that. So in the Psalms, David cries out again and again all kinds of different things, but one, one example is he just cries out to God over and over again, how long, God? How long? How long will you let this injustice or this horrible thing go on, God? How long? Why aren't you bringing justice? How long? So think about it this way. If Okay, if you're kids, if you're a parent and your kids are frustrated with you, would you rather they, they talk with you about it and they, they ask questions and you have dialogue and go back and forth? Or would you rather that they just ignore you and turn their back on you? And, and I want to throw an idea out to you. Like if prayer is new for you, you're like, I don't even know where to, st- like I, this is really new. If it's, prayer f- if it's new and it's awkward, then what if you were to just start by talking to God about how awkward it feels? Like, God, I want to learn to pray. This feels really foreign. feels really awkward to me. And I'm tempted to just give up on it and not do it. So God, I need you to help me with this. C.S. Lewis, the, the spiritual giant of the last century, once said of prayer, we must lay before him what is in us. Not what ought to be in us. God, God wants real time with the real you. Why, why pray? Because prayer connects us to our Father. And as, as like as a parent, for those of you that are parents, we we can we can begin to feel on a very small level some of what God feels. I mean, I think we we ache to be connected to our kids. And this makes parenting teens like particularly tricky, right? I mean, our relationship has to grow, and it has to morph, and it has to change, and right now, I'm, I'm feeling this with my youngest, right, with Brooklyn. Uh, a year ago, you guys, we had like, we had, a, we had very different life rhythms than we do right now, because she's growing up. Like a year ago, I drove her to all of her basketball stuff, all over like Snohomish and King Counties, and it was usually at least like 30-minute drives in each direction multiple times a week, and so sometimes we would talk. Sometimes we would just rock out, and the kid has killer taste in music, um, and she's funny as heck. And so it's just it was it's a good time. Um, and so last February she turned. Anybody know how old? Sixteen. Wow, <laughs> and now she stinking drives herself everywhere. And so guess what? I feel the loss. I do. So, um, and on top of all of that, you guys, she got a job at Chick-fil-A by Lowe's. Has anybody seen her there? No, no fast foodies in here. We're very healthy people. Okay, so if you wanted to go see her, she works Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday. (laughs) She usually works from four or five till about nine-ish. So here's what that means for me. It means that she's not home for dinner on those nights either. It, it means she eats at work for free, which is a pretty sweet, <laughs> pretty sweet Chick-fil-A perk. Um, so, so we don't have the car rides, and we, and we have dinner together a whole lot less. And she has basketball practice then on Tuesday and Thursdays, and so we have kind of a quick dinner, and then she rushes off. And all of this to say, you guys, like, I'm getting way less time with my girl, and I feel the loss. And so you guys, I have this, like, legitimate ache for connection and so I've tried to be like super intentional about any other kind of opportunity so two weeks ago Jen's in Ecuador right and I work from home and so I decided that that particular week I would take a really late lunch every day so Brooklyn gets home around 2 15 after school and I decided that I would just happen to be sitting having lunch (laughs) right in her space Now, I didn't plan anything with her. She is right now is going, oh, that's, that's what was going on. <laughs> so I just like put myself in her proximity. And I didn't know if she'd have time or if she'd, if she'd you know, want to or if it would work for her, but I was just kind of hoping that she would just organically like sit and talk with me. And so guess what, you guys? She totally did. <laughs> like It worked. And so she would sit down to tell me what she was thinking about. One day she was she was going bananas over her history class. Um, she was learning stuff that she just found really interesting, and she thought it was thought provoking. And so she told me about it, and then she wanted to know what I think. <laughs> and uh, and you guys, it was like it was like old times, right? The car rides. It was a little slice of heaven, to be honest. Now there was one day where she came in, and she got a snack and she went downstairs to watch TV. <laughs> and and she didn't, you guys, she didn't choose me. <laughs> now, I get it. Uh, she's tired, right? She's got a lot going on. She was looking forward before she even got home. She had already made up her mind she was gonna go downstairs and do some chilling. But I, you know, I was like, huh. She didn't choose me. Isn't that sad, you guys? <laughs> I think you should say it with me. Aw, thank you. So my, my heart for connection with Brooke, it's, it's real. Like, that's real. And yet, as any of you or our parents know with your kids, it's real. And yet, if we understand what God is like, that ache that we feel for our kids pales. In comparison to the ache he feels for us and we think "Well, but I haven't really come to him much lately he's probably mad at me or you know I've been I've been struggling with that thing you know, I don't want to say it out loud but the thing that I struggle with and I feel bad about it and you guys this is why our our, our picture of God matters so much he is he's gracious He's kind. He's eager to forgive. He's, 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 he's scanning the horizon, looking for us to turn. And he runs to us. Jesus is like, how many ways can I explain to you what God is like? He's kind. He wants you to bring everything to him. He's always available. And here's the thing. You really need it. You really need it. And, and that leads me to another big reason to pray. And it's that prayer changes us. Like, have you ever noticed that we have a tendency to just sort of take on the values and the characteristics of the people we spend a lot of time with? I mean, sometimes you can you can see it in a couple that's been married a long time. It's almost creepy. <laughs> but the way they talk, right, and the things that they, they value, and they, they see the world the same thing, they just tend to notice the same things. They have almost identical political views. Right, as parents, we know people become like who they spend time with, and it's why we care so dang much about who our kids have as friends. I mean, we know that they will tend to take on the values and the characteristics of the people they're hanging out with, and you, you see this, this principle at plays so powerfully like among middle schoolers, right? In middle school, it's just like, oh my word. Sometimes you look at a pair of middle school girls, and they're like, they like totally talk the same and they, like, totally dress the same, and they, like, totally do their hair the same, and they, like, listen to the same music. At times, it's almost like they've become one person, you know. But, but taking on the values and characteristics of the people we're with, I mean, this happens to any of us. And it happens at any age. And this happens to people, and this is the cool thing, this happens to people who spend time with God in prayer. Um, it's interesting, like Moses, after he'd go up on the mountain to be with God, we're told that in the scripture he would, he would literally come down the mountain and his face would be like a glow. Um, and, and it's like the glory of God would just light him up and his face would literally glow. And I, and I think, here's what I'll tell you, I think in a way, this dynamic is still in effect. Because I don't know if you've ever spent time with someone who prays deeply, but what I, what I tend to see in people like that is a glow. They're the characteristics of God, right? There's compassion and justice and concern for the hurting and wisdom and they just like absorb it from the Father. And here's what I know from my own life. My prayer life has gone through many iterations and I've had hills and I've had valleys, but when I'm consistently connecting with the Father in prayer, I find that my insecurities are diminished. I find that I'm less critical of other people. I find that I'm not so quick to be defensive, I find that I'm more patient with people that usually tend to annoy me. I discover that more reasons to express joy. I I find I have a deeper concern for the actual well-being of people. I find that sin looks a lot less attractive. And I find that my anxiety is often replaced with peace. Crazy. When we pray, there's all kinds of stuff that just rubs off on us. And so... We pray because it connects us to the Father. We pray because prayer changes us. But one, one, I want to close with one final reason why I pray. Because prayer changes the world. Prayer does more than change how we feel about the world. I mean, back to the question that we we so often and very naturally uh, wonder about: if God is all-knowing, all-loving, and all-powerful, then isn't he already doing all that can be done? And you guys, the biblical answer to that is no, he's not. Sometimes he waits for people to pray before he acts. And we see this again and again and again in Scripture. So let's think for a second about why God would operate this way. Well, first of all, God has, has given us freedom to make choices, right? It's his desire His will that we make good choices. It's always his will that we make good choices, but we are free to make bad choices if we want. His will is that we make good choices, but his will is also to give us freedom, which means sometimes his will isn't done. So you can love people or you can hurt people, and your choices have real consequences for real people in the real world. God wants you to choose love, but he leaves the choice to you. And the the way it sometimes gets expressed is this. God has taken a risk to give us influence. God allows each of us to have some degree of say-so in our world. Now, the obvious question is why? Why would God allow us to choose not only to do good, but to choose to do evil? Why would he allow that? Ultimately, why would God allow us to sin? Because God's highest goal is love. And in order to have genuine love, you have to have personhood and you have to have choice. You have to be able to make decisions that have real consequences. For love to be real and meaningful, there has to be a choice for you. You guys, I am not a computer wizard, but I have a laptop in my office, and I I could, if I wanted to, program the screensaver on it. (laughs) And I I could program it to say... Jason, I love you deeply. You are the most attractive man alive. <laughs> You're the smartest man on the face of the earth. You're the only one for me. I love you deeply. Every gigabyte of me is devoted to you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Give me more, Daddy. Now, if I, if I walk into my office and I see that on my screen... Is it meaningful to me? Uh, if it is, <laughs> I need psychiatric attention, <laughs> right? Because that's that's not real. Okay, but in 1997, I met a girl named Jenny, Jenny York, and she said, "I love you so much. I want to spend the rest of my life with you. I like you so much. I want to bear your children." I like you so much that I'll take care of you when your hair falls out and you have dentures. And call me crazy, but that means something to me. You know why? Because she could choose otherwise. And she, you're not going to believe this, but she had a, a lots of other options, actually. <laughs> and some of you were like, yeah, I've wondered about that for years. Like, what, <laughs> what, 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 I'm like, I'm not going to give up my, I got game and I'm not going to, I'm not going to share it. She chose me, and she keeps choosing me. That matters. Could God have pre-programmed people to only do his will? Of course he could, sure. But he couldn't simultaneously have a genuine relationship of love with them. So God took a real risk when he created human beings. He's given us freedom to make choices. God's will is to have relationships of authentic love with his children, with his people. And that causes him to limit himself. It causes him to limit his control so that you can have personhood. He's given you say-so, even if you use that say-so to violate his will. His will is to have an opportunity to have a love relationship with you. And he risks you violating his will to do it. But here's what I want us to see in the, in the realm of prayer. Not only has God given each of us, like, say-so in the physical world, God has also given us a degree of say-so in the spiritual realm. So apparently, God has chosen to create a world in which he has bound himself to the prayers of his people. God can do this. And here's the thing. Not everything that God wants done gets done, Right? I mean, we know this. Some things only get done when, when we or people choose to do them. Like God God wants the poor to be fed. Do we all agree on that? God wants the poor to be fed, but somebody has to choose to do it. And in the physical realm, God waits for people to take action. So in the same way, Scripture teaches, he sometimes waits in the spiritual realm. Like our say-so extends beyond the physical to the spiritual. So God has ordered things in this way in order to foster relationship with us. God has ordered things in this way so that we can enter into a relationship of dependence and love with him because his highest will is that love is freely chosen. His will in other regards sometimes goes undone. So I guess I I would say it this way. In the physical realm, sometimes God waits for us to act. In the spiritual realm, Sometimes God waits for us to ask. This is, you guys, this is all over Scripture. It's everywhere. Like in Matthew 21, Jesus does a a miracle with a fig tree, and the disciples watch him do it. And then afterward, they're just in, they're looking at each other, and they're in a state of awe and disbelief. And I love Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of this passage. He says, they rub their eyes, saying, did we really see this? Verse 21, but Jesus was matter of fact. Yes, and if you embrace this kingdom life and don't doubt God, you'll not only do minor feats like I did to the fig tree, but also triumph over huge obstacles. This mountain, for instance, you'll tell, go jump in the lake, and it will jump. Absolutely everything, ranging from small to large, as you make it part of your believing prayer, gets included as you lay hold of God. Wow. You guys here's here's what like gets my heart pounding and racing with this. It's that often our influence in the in the physical realm is is limited to a degree by like our giftedness. Right? Our intellect, our creative abilities, our charisma, our leadership skills, stuff that we know, our knowledge base, all of that. But when it comes to prayer, here's the thing: the limits are gone. And like again, in the in the physical realm, God sometimes waits for us to act. In the spiritual realm, God sometimes waits for us to, act, to ask. And you guys, this means that not everything God wants done is being done. It means heaven is filled with answers to prayer. No one has bothered to ask. And of course, I, I just want to clear something up. Jesus is absolutely not promising that all of our prayers are going to be answered. There are times where he's so emphatic about this that it kind of sounds like that. And there, there's something in us that goes, yeah, that's, that's not possible. And we're right. I mean, we're right. For example, some prayers are mutually exclusive. Like last Sunday night, the Seahawks played the New York Giants. People in Seattle prayed for a Seattle win. People in New York prayed for a Giants win. It was mutually exclusive, right? And so obviously, God loves the Seahawks. <laughs> Amen? Amen. Amen. Sometimes our own prayers are contradictory, right? Sometimes our own prayers, things that we're asking for, they're contradictory. We might pray, God, help me grow. Make me mature. And at the same time, we pray, God, take away all my difficulties. <laughs> and God is left saying, sorry, like, those prayers are, they're contradictory. God, God isn't going to grant our requests when we ask him for things that, that he knows will harm us. And he isn't going to grant requests for things that are a lesser good. He'll never trade the greater good for a lesser good. And sometimes the problem is we just don't know about the greater good. And and that's what makes prayer perfectly safe. Right? The God who sees and knows far more than us can look at our request, process it in light of everything that he's doing and say, I'm sorry, but no. Because he will always refuse to give us the lesser good. Always. Jesus wants us to know, though, that God longs to hear our prayers. And God longs to answer our prayers. I mean, listen to Jesus explain this. Just one example. This is Luke 18. It says, one day Jesus told his disciples a story to show that they should always pray and never give up. He says, there was a judge in a certain city who said, uh, in, in a certain city, and he said, uh, There was a judge in a certain city, he said Jesus, who neither feared God nor cared about people. So in this parable, just to set up the scene, the picture is a cold-hearted human judge who doesn't love people, doesn't care about justice, he doesn't care about God, he doesn't care about what's right. Jesus goes on, a widow of that city came to him repeatedly saying, give me justice in this dispute with my enemy. So a widow with no social status, no social capital, comes before this cold-hearted judge, and she repeatedly comes and asks him for justice. Jesus goes on. The judge ignored her for a while, but finally he said to himself, I don't fear God or care about people, but this woman's driving me crazy. I'm going to see that she gets justice because she is wearing me out with her constant requests. Some of you are like, does Jesus know my kids? jesus is saying don't miss the point he's saying even a cold-hearted judge can over time be swayed by requests and so what he's saying is how much more would your requests matter to a father who loves you deeply verse six then the lord said learn a lesson from this unjust judge even he rendered a, a, deci- a just decision in the end. So don't you think God will surely give justice to his chosen people who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? Jesus says God, is, he's not like a heartless judge. And he, he uses this reference again and again. He's like, he's like, he's a father. He's a parent. In Matthew 7, he says, you parents, if your children ask you for a loaf of bread, do you, do you give them a stone instead? Or if they ask you for a fish, do you give them a snake? Of course not. So he says, if you, you, like flawed, if sinful people, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask him? <laughs> What's the point that Jesus is making here? It's very simple. God longs to answer our prayers. He's waiting for us to ask, and he wants us to come to him. And that leaves us with a question that we've all wrestled with which is why has God gone silent on me? I mean, some of you have or you're currently praying like crazy for something. And as far as you can see, it is a good thing. It is something that God should want to do. And yet for some reason, he isn't doing it. He hasn't done it. And this is, this is so confusing and it's painful. And anyone, here's the thing, anybody who prays hard for an extended period of time will eventually experience it. Even Jesus prayed, right, that God would take the cup of suffering from him. But God refused to trade a greater good for a lesser good. And Jesus eventually accepted it. Your will be done, Father. At the time of his death, it made no sense to those that were devoted to Jesus. I mean, the disciples just couldn't understand. It looked like everything was lost. But it turns out that in Jesus' death, everything was just beginning. And and this is the way that it is with God, right? He sees things that we don't. He's up to things that we can't possibly understand. And this is why Paul writes, and we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare his his own son but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? You guys, God is up to beautiful things. But from our limited perspective, we can't see so much of it. And so this this is where faith comes in. This is where trust comes in. And when we're confused, like David, God says, come talk to me come talk to me about it, vent, I can take it. He would rather us air out our complaints than just shut him out and go silent on him. And that means that when it comes to prayer, the main thing is this, start where you are. And Tyler Staten says it this way, the most straightforward response is to talk to God about what's on your mind. That's it. You talk to God like you talk to a friend. You vent you ask, you laugh, you listen, you unload, you just talk. You don't try to sound more holy or pure or spiritual than you are. Prayer isn't a noble monologue. It's a free-flowing conversation. And the only way to get prayer wrong is to try to get it right. And Paul said it this way, the Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Most often when this passage gets quoted, it begins with the command to rid yourself of anxiety. Do not be anxious about anything. But if you notice, the passage doesn't actually start there. The preceding statement is the key to the whole thing. The Lord is near. The, the deep fear that robs our prayers of power is the lie that the Lord isn't near. The lie that God has forgotten me, that I'm not in good hands, that my future isn't secure. The fear that r- really, when it comes all right, right down to it, I'm on my own. If there's one thing Jesus insisted again and again and again, it's this. You are not on your own. The Lord is near. There are huckleberries everywhere. Yes. So to those who knock, the door will be opened. Father in heaven, I thank you for this wonderful mystery that is prayer. And Jesus, when I, when I do the things that you said to do, It's amazing how often I experience the things that you said I would experience. Especially if I stay at this stuff over time. And so, God, I pray that you would teach us to pray. Jesus, as the disciples said to you, Lord, teach us to pray.